Hi, everyone. You're listening to the podcast of Angel Nears, a Silicon Valley community of startup builders where experienced operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Ole Kujikov, and today our guest is Mark Degenkolb. He brings a wealth of experience, 20 years building enterprise software sales teams and delivering revenue growth for both established and startup companies. Today, we're going to talk about sales best practices. Okay, so we, we, we are talking now about a sales deck. So let's talk about sales decks and presentation. So in my career, the best salespeople I've seen are the ones that can tell great stories. They're great listeners and they're great storytellers, and they know how to weave in the technical capabilities around the business challenges the customer is facing. And so I'm not going to take any credit on this. I'm not a person that likes to read or speak to a slide. Um, as I told you, I'm the one that likes to tell the stories around the slide and shorter decks are better. And if you can keep them to five to seven pages or deck, you know, slides, that's, that's ideal. And the greatest deck that I've ever seen, and this is what I've, I've gone into my last two companies with and actually rebuilding their, their strategies for the executive presentation and vision and just you know consistency and what you're trying to drive for everybody and anybody inside the company to speak to when they say, what do you do? Mm-hmm. It was actually created by Zora, Z-U-O-R-A. I am not taking credit for this. The only thing I am going to tell you is that they provide the format and they speak to it because they know they did something amazing. And instead of having to recreate the wheel, I just utilize their strategy. So their guide on building what a brilliant sales narrative looks like is they figured out there's no reason. The the first thing that you need to execute on is you want to name a big relevant change in the world and don't kick off a sales presentation by talking about your product, showing a demo, presenting your headquarters or your locations or your investors or your clients or anything about you. Um, Instead, name kind of the undeniable shift in the world that both creates big stakes and huge urgency for your prospect. So that's slide one. And it's, it's the way that they do it visually is awesome. And creating just a simple slogan and how you're presenting it to speak to from a storytelling perspective, it's, uh, it's not easy. But when you get it, it's a, it's a blast and how you can change the way that you present and compete with your competitors. The second slide, you actually show that there will be winners and losers. And... All prospects suffer from what economists call loss evasion, loss of loss of aversion. That's what it is, loss aversion. And it's basically they tend to avoid a potential or possible loss by sticking to status quo. And this means the customer. And rather than the possible risk or gain by opting in for change, you need to combat that loss aversion and you need to demonstrate how the change you cited is actually going to create big winners and then big losers. And so you're creating this, this, this vision around that. The, the third slide is you kind of tease with this promised land. 
And it's tempting at this point. I've watched it even with the last company where reps want to go right into the technical or sales engineers want to go right into the features and functions, but don't do it. Resist the urge and introduce your product in services at a later time. But prospects really don't have enough context yet on why those details are even important or why they matter. And they typically tune out. So instead of doing that, present kind of a teaser vision of a happier life after and what it's going to provide the prospect to achieve in this promised land. And the promised land needs to be both desirable and difficult for the prospect to get there without outside help. Because if you don't present the difficulty associated to it, then why the heck do they need your product or service? And then the fourth slide is where you start speaking about these, what they call magical gifts. And these incorporate your, your features, your functions, your unique differentiation to the competition. But these magic gifts for overcoming the obstacles to get to the promised land. And if it's not clear by now, successful sales decks follow the same sales narratives of like an epic film or a fairy tale or something like that. So when you introduce your product or service, do it by positioning its capabilities and teasing with what the promised land could look like. And then finally, what you're doing is you're kind of tying back the evidence to make the story come true based on proof points because littered with obstacles, you're going to have prospects that are going to be highly skeptical and are going to doubt your ability to deliver. And it's basically an opportunity to pitch the best evidence that you can provide that the story you're telling can actually come true. So I'm not taking any credit. It's Zora. They're awesome. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a good story. I, I, I yeah, I'm going to refrain a little bit from talking more. I'm talking too much more about it, but what I will say is like, yeah, the first part, name a big change. That sort of puts everyone on the same page. You're in the same room now showing that there will be winners and losers. So that's pretty clear, but show the, show the customer tease the promised land. I think you, you said the word vision. And I think that's the most important thing is like build this vision of, you know, what you could be, but also have it be difficult to reach, but also achievable. So it's kind of a, a balancing act there. And then you introduce your features. How, how does our product actually, what does our product actually do? How will we achieve that vision? And then it's tying it all together. What evidence do you have to solidify your, your position here? Next, we wanted to talk about the sales qualification process. Uh, what is that and why is it important? Yeah, so a sales qualification process is a part of the sales process where salespeople and leadership determine whether or not a prospect is a good fit for your product or service that you're selling. Um, There are many frameworks out there like Bant, Medic, MedPick, Champ, others. I don't really care. It's just more of a, you've got to pick a framework, you've got to stick to it, and you've got to use it to quickly qualify in and out opportunities so that you invest resources 
in the right opportunities to increase your win ratio and decrease your cost of sale. So I'll go into some of the different strategies, but it's pretty, pretty simple. But you just got to commit to it and stick to it. And then when talking about your transactions and forecast reviews, if it's something like BANT, which is B-A-N-T, and the B stands for budget, the A stands for authority, the N stands for need, and the T stands for timeline, then commit to when you speak about an opportunity in a forecast review, you're speaking to those four things. Um, some of the other ones get a little bit more complex, like MedPIC, where it's metrics, the economic buyer, it's the decision criteria, the decision process, the identified pain, the champion, and then there's a second C component to it, which is around knowledge around the competition. Um, again, I don't care what you use. I just need the organization to commit to living, breathing, and dying by one. Because when you put resources on opportunities where you have a low percentage to win, why would you do it in the first place? So it's a great weeding practice to ensure that you're investing in the right opportunities. Uh, just really quick, what's your framework of choice? Depending on the complexity of the sale, I, I like to try and bounce between Bant and then MedPick. And the reason why MedPick, for a complex, complex sale, the reason why I like that one is not only does it focus on understanding the economic buying hierarchy inside the organization, forces you to truly understand the decision criteria of the business value and impact of what this technology is going to provide the organization. It forces you to understand the decision process. And I kind of break a sales process into two phases. There's the, how do I get a technical win? And then once you get a technical win, how do I get a signed contract in hand? And a lot of sales reps truly have a difficult time understanding the exact reverse steps to close on how to get a signed contract and PO in hand. Um, there are situations where I can just give you stories where it was a forecasted transaction for the second week of December. And then five months later, we got the deal because nobody truly understand the complexity of doing a deal with this Fortune 50 company and what it meant to get a master license agreement signed through that organization's legal team. Nobody knew. So the importance of how do I get a technical win and then how do I get a signed contract? And another example I'll give is, you know, when I was at CA Technologies, it was something where it was a known, it was a known fact. Our CFO at the time, he did not make technology investments if after the first month of a quarter, the numbers either weren't good or we weren't forecasting to exceed plan for the quarter by the 30th day of the quarter. He basically froze all technology acquisitions for the balance of the quarter. But if you were a rep calling into an IT executive and that executive didn't proactively tell you that, how would you know? And so it's this curiosity, this, I like to define it as natural curiosity, where when you ask a question like, well, walk me through your decision process. Oh, it's simple. It goes to Bill and then Nancy signs it. Nothing simple. And I can promise you that that two-step process that that individual explained to you is probably 50. 
And it's a conversation that you need to have with everybody that you speak to in that closing phase for that transaction and validate and then gain insights into, okay, what's next? And it's just a continuous, complex closing process, selling, especially to the Fortune 500 customer base. So this kind of actually goes back to the sales process we defined earlier and this sales qualification process, it'll improve and, and you can sort of update your entire sales process as you, as you go along. Yeah, it's, it's a continuous tweaking effort and you'll find out that based on personas, you can potentially change or even add delays into the sales opportunity by persona. And then you just need to make a business decision if it's something you want to pursue now. Like going back to that Series A company I was talking about that needed to get to 50 referenceable customers by the end of the fiscal year, they are completely dropping out two personas and they're going to market strategy because they need to close deals faster to be able to get these individuals live before the end of the fiscal year. So it's a continuous evolution is maybe the best way to put it. Got it. Got it. Okay. So we've talked about the process. We talked about qualifying sales and we've mentioned data-driven forecasting. Yeah. So data-driven forecasting, I know we've talked about data-driven processes, but I don't know about forecasting. Can you break down that word for me? Yeah. So the goal of this practice is to actually use your data. And again, data doesn't lie. And the whole purpose is to improve your conversion rates and sales forecasting accuracy. Because when a chairman of the board or the CEO and executive leadership team or your investors look you in the eye and basically say, what are you going to close this quarter? And you basically give them a spreadsheet, but that spreadsheet doesn't mirror the data that's in the CRM technology. It just creates confusion and lack of trust that you know how to run a business. So going back to once you build the sales process and once you've ultimately enabled the sales team to know that they own their franchise and that the CRM technology is their single source of truth, it's their business, it's their franchise, you basically eliminate utilizing outside CRM spreadsheets to manage the business. And after you get to the point where everything makes sense, it's ultimately just fine tuning and tweaking, but the data should be leveraged. The data doesn't lie and it all kind of takes everything together on what we discussed with regards to the, the sales process. Um, and it allows you to forecast more accurately based on the stages and the activities and the gates and what they're driven before they can move to the next stage and things like that. So does that make sense? Is there anything that I can elaborate on? I guess I'd just be more interested in hearing about your own experience with data and using data to drive sales processes. The, the data in Salesforce, if used properly, can be effective, not only for sales, but for finance, operations, marketing, anybody and everybody inside the company, engineering, things, product management, strategies, long-term, where they want to go and why, because they're seeing the data being forecasted by account, by opportunity, by vertical. They're seeing if there's a 
a consistency in a nine to 12 month average and start to finish for when a first meeting to a signed contract and PO in hand. And they're trying to figure out how to decrease that by just gaining insights into the data. If it wasn't tracked in the CRM effectively, you wouldn't see it in the first place. But in that case, you could go, okay, so when we go through a technical validation event, which in that case, every customer was adamant about doing a technology validation event through a proof of concept or a proof of value or something like that. And there was no way around it. We had to go through that. But what it did is it said, look, if we want to get faster and we want to be able to not have to have these lengthy multi-month technology validation events, we've got to figure out something different. And it actually forced product management to build a SaaS platform technology to give individual organizations self-service access to do evaluations of the technology without going through a multi-month. So it's if you're not collecting the data and you're not managing KPIs to the data, then you don't really understand what's going on in the business and where you can ultimately fine tune and potentially decrease and shorten sales cycles, as an example. I think I'm getting it. One of the big things we've talked about is transparency throughout the cycle. And I I mentioned earlier, cutting out thinking, but um, this is kind of another way to provide transparency and retroactively look at what's been going on to then make better future decisions. Okay, so let's talk about territory coverage. What is it and how do you do it right? Yeah, this is the example I was going to share with you around the CEO of that mid-sized tech firm um, where he was he was talking about the one rep and then this rep. And it was just a it was a minor tweak that we had to make on the go-to-market strategy in bifurcating the sales team and creating hunters and then creating farmers, which then meant we had to build the right compensation models because those individuals are, their brain ticks differently based on what what drives them and how to actually make them strive to even be more successful. So after you define your market and go to market strategy, you need to assess the account quality. You need to assess the territory coverage and territory quality. You need to assess the reps to understand, like I said, their strengths and weaknesses um, and how to exploit the strengths and continuously work on improving the weaknesses. And you've got to review these, these data points and potentially even consolidate to build the right model where it fits into your budget and business strategy and what you're committing to the board and the investors. So you're assessing what you've done, you're assessing that these people are successful in what they're doing, and then you're tweaking it. If the investment for building out an enterprise field sales team is not the strategy because it's too costly based on where the organization is at today, it could be a different model where it's building out an inside business development rep team where you're sprinkling out technologists, typically like a sales engineer in the field after 
the initial introductions made by the BDR team, they've created the interest, and then it's a technical sale, which requires the technical sales engineer instead of an enterprise sales rep. It's all timing. So all of these strategies could completely change over the course of the company's life cycle, but they all... I've got another organization I was just talking with a couple of days ago where it's it's something they just they're going to pull out of the enterprise sales space and just go to a pure business development rep or inside sales rep strategy because the outside reps are just in a point right now where the company can't fund itself and they've got to decrease their their sales model and they need to increase their pipeline generation to have more conversations but in that case with that organization, the executive leadership team, the co-founders were on every sales call. And so I'm like, well, then why do you need the outside field sales team at this point in your company's cycle? And so it's, it's that type of strategy that you've just got to try and figure out the right go-to-market and budget that you can fit into to where the organization resides right now. Hmm. So I guess when we're saying territory coverage, it's like, Examining the process, analyzing what you're doing, determining we're using resources in these places. Are we utilizing them well? Are these resources playing to their strengths and trying to cover their weaknesses and then adjusting adjusting accordingly? It could be a change to the territory coverage model where you finally realize after your 50th customer that your sweet spot is in insurance and financial services. Mm -hmm. And so it may mean putting your most expensive, most successful sales reps into a particular vertical because their knowledge and experience for the past 15 years has been selling to financial services. So you're exploiting an individual rep's success and strengths to benefit the company as a whole. So that could be an example as well. Got it. So does this get into like the planning of sales territory? Yeah, this is this is more of I kind of like I like Benjamin Franklin's quote that he says that if you fail to plan you're if you fail to plan you're you're planning to fail. So the value of a sales territory plan is to confirm a that you have a strategy, the individual rep or sales leader has a strategy, but it actually allows if managed properly your leadership to hold you accountable as a rep to be a partner in the field if you're the sales leader with the rep because you'll be able to proactively see where they're struggling if they're having challenges breaking into net new accounts and things like that. But what, what I typically do is I baseline the current performance of every sales leader, first and second line management, and rep in the company. And it goes back to if you don't know where you are or where you came from, then you don't know where you're going. So after you do that, if you have a territory as a rep, what do you think the first thing or most valuable thing you could do? And that is to truly understand where your existing customers reside. So analyze your existing customer spend in your territory. Truly go to the depths in understanding why they purchased it. How long ago did they purchase it? What value are they gaining from the deployment today? Where do they see the technology going in the future? Because I'll, I cannot tell you how many times I've come across situations where we need to do an enterprise license agreement for this account. Why? Well, because they've got 50,000 units and they need another 50,000 units. So 
they want to do an unlimited usage rights contract. And it's like, well, is that it? Is that all they can deploy? Is that a full enterprise deployment of our technology at the company? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, when you get in and you start having conversations, in that particular situation, we found out that they needed another 150,000 units for a different line of business next year. And then they needed a potential million units for a different go-to-market strategy that they were trying to implement. And then it was a potential replacement for three other products because we had two products embedded into one that they could eliminate the run rate and spend with the other competitors and we could have grabbed some of that market share. So it's, it's the ability to truly understand the existing footprint, where the product can go and why in running those expansions play because the best customer is a current customer and all you're doing is leveraging the successes internally to expand the deployment within other lines of business or whatever it might be in the account. After that, the next step in what I see as far as the best practice with reps is you have to know where your white space resides. But not, again, white space is not a term that I found out last week is not globally understood. White space to me is a target account that does not own your product or service. So when you have a a rep, they understand all of their accounts in their territory. These are my customers. This is how they're using it. This is what they're using it for. This is the value they're gaining from it. And then these are the sales plays I'm running to expand the footprint. Then it's okay, what customer or what companies are not customers? And so when you look at that list, you go, okay, let's go back to my go to market strategy and understand where our successes are with the existing companies globally. And maybe you prioritize your financial services, your insurance organizations, and a couple others as that top priority rung. And so you're building out strategies in leveraging, which I'm going to go to into here in a second, high value networking strategies to get access to executives and those accounts to shorten and get, you know, decrease those sales cycles. Anyway, so I'll stop there. No, yeah, that was uh, awesome and informative. And uh, honestly, I'm gonna have to go back and listen to, to process the whole thing. But let's talk about high value networking. What is it and how should you do that? Yeah, so it's it's a it's networking to add value either to yourself or to others. So most people would say, is that simple enough? And the answer is no. And no matter what network you use, whether it's digital, like LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, etc., or for its personal, like conferences, dinner events, clubs, organizations, support groups, whatever it might be. It's an opportunity to build relationships and make it personal with people. Well, I like to personally use this high value networking strategy and helping teams understand the fact that one person does not usually purchase enterprise software. End of story. It's typically a group of people, executives, lines of business. It's a multi-stakeholder complex sale. And the art of HVNing, again, high value networking, takes your target accounts. So go back to the the territory plan that the rep built and he identified or she identified that their top five accounts are these five financial institutions. And if they could just break into those accounts, because that vertical is by far the most successful company wide globally, 
what they do is they ultimately build a visual representation of the hierarchy because there's tools out there, discover work, things like that, where you can get your CIO, CTO, chief data officer, whoever it might be, and start building it down. And then you'll know who to target based on that go-to-market strategy and the positioning and messaging by persona, and then who they report up through. And what it does is it gives the reps and leadership and ability to visually see, okay, here's my champion, they're green. And what green means is, is that they can truly sell on behalf of the company. They know the product probably better than you, and they can clearly articulate the business value that they're going to gain by purchasing your software or services. And then if they're yellow, they're kind of closer to that. They're a work in project or process and they're going to become green, but they're just not there yet. And then red, they don't even know who you are. They don't even know the technology or service. They are completely out of the loop. And when you build that visual representation, it does two things. One, it shows you where your gaps are. So if a rep's committing a $500,000 transaction for this month, and you ask, well, who's your champion? Oh, it's Phil. Well, what's his title? He's a senior director. Okay, well, who does he report to? I don't know. And then you find out, okay, let's go backwards. Who's the CIO? And then you work backwards and you find out he's four levels behind the CIO or below the CIO. And then you go, does the CIO even know that this $500,000 purchase is going to be made this month? And it allows you to truly go through a better qualification process. And unlike Kevin Bacon's six degree of separation, I like to truly figure out how to make it two degrees. And it, hadn't, it hasn't proven me wrong unless it's just an account we haven't been able to gain any access into. So there are, there are three parts to this high value networking strategy. The first is you have to identify the key stakeholders. I, I, we already walked through that. You have to understand leveraging LinkedIn, you know, first and second degree connections with all employees, with investors, with partners, with current customer, because you want to see the connections, right? You want to see where potential relationships can be leveraged. And that targeting of executive bridging needs to take place six to nine months in advance of a deal closing. Because if you do it in a way that's proactive, then you're being positioned as is strategic to the actual company and position with regards to the sale instead of a potential used car sales manager because we're in the 11th and a half hour of the deal and it's stuck and the CIO is not going to sign it. And then you've got a sales leader trying to call into a CIO that doesn't know who they are. It's a complete backwards process. So once you, you do that, it's ultimately, you have to speak their language. So once you know who the chain is and you understand all the connections, then you've got to figure out their job history. You've got to figure out were they a previous customer or not. You've got to understand if they've POC'd the technology before if they chose a competitive technology, whatever it might be, any kind of communication with a account you're trying to break into, you have to speak their language. End of story. You have to read their quarterly annual reports, their investor presentations, whatever it might be, so you can speak exactly how they speak about what challenges and again, transformational innovation, whatever it might be. You can search for publications or related articles or presentations or case studies or videos of anything that potential individuals have presented to. So 
if you're targeting a CISO and you're curious to find out if uh, whatever you're trying to sell as a service is something that's a priority for them, and then you find out that they've actually just recently did a presentation at a CIO forum on that exact topic, now you've got a golden nugget, a silver bullet in how to communicate effectively to break down the door in the account. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of goes into being able to intelligently ask a have a plan before you ask for help. Um, I'll give you an example where I had hired a couple different consulting organizations in my recent company's sales kickoff. And one of them was helping us around social selling. And what happened was he was effective in the way that he utilized a current customer to then give me a warm introduction based on the current customer was a friend of mine. So he was a second connection of mine. And it was ultimately something where it was like, connect, 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 warm introduction. Yeah, I'll take the call. And then it was an awesome opportunity. But he wouldn't have done it if he didn't know I was challenged with what he could help me with around social selling. So you've definitely got to have a plan. Yeah, I mean, I think the value here in in networking is pretty clear. You're going to be able to approach the problem. You're going to be able to understand the personal interactions and sort of the human element of the sale better by setting up your network and, and understanding it. Okay, so next, it's people management. In my eyes, it's defined as whether it's practices end-to-end specific to talent acquisition, to talent optimization, to retention, whatever it might be, it's critical. End of story. And when you look at the key areas that I focus on, the first thing I do is I focus on, it's all about getting the right people in the right seats on the bus. I have a proven top grading process that enables growth through people at scale to minimize that turnover while building up people through tight processes, exploiting their strengths and proactively working on the weaknesses. It's a, it's a top grading process that's just proven. It works. Mm-hmm. And then once you get the right people in the right seats, then it comes down to the team building aspect because the trust is crucial. And I kind of say that that make it personal piece where I have been known to let individuals, sales engineers, sales reps, sales leadership, pre-sale leadership, whatever it might be. You can come to me for anything. It doesn't matter. If it's where you need to leave and go on to that next chapter of your life, I'll help you negotiate your contract for your new position. I will never hold anything against you. Because when you look at it from that perspective, what, what do recruiters do all day, every day? They're always going after our sales reps and our sales leadership, trying to pull them out of the organization. So if you've got that type of trust where you know that nothing's going to be held against you and it's a situation that we could potentially fix, but most people are scared to death to talk about it or bring it up. Like an example of, I had a sales engineer that a best friend left to go be a pre-sales director at a uh, competing company. And he was going to get a $40,000 base increase. And his second child was going to college. I mean, that's real money. You can't argue with that. That's not variable. That's fixed. And so it was the situation that because he felt comfortable enough to bring it to me, that we were able to fix it. And the individual, by the way, is still at that company 12 years later. So it creates loyalty and things like that. And then I've got aspects around motivational mapping and just 
traditional appreciation strategies and knowledge seeking strategies mm -hmm. for continuous education and things like that. Yeah, and we're kind of uh, browsing through these, but uh, by no by no means are these not like important topics. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a true collaboration with HR in that in that, in that manner for sure. Yeah. So the last piece of this is the cadence schedule. So I don't know what that means. Can you tell me uh, what you mean by that? Yeah, it's it's ultimately what do you do daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, or annually, and how do you speak to and run the business? It's ultimately, it's a process to ensure that you get what you need when you need it, but you don't waste people's time and you ensure that sales has ample time to do what they need to do, which is to be out selling in front of the customer. So it could include individual one-on-ones. It could include forecast calls, team meetings, business reviews, sales kickoffs, things like that. So again, it truly depends on where the organization's at, the size of the company, the complexity of having to manage 100 salespeople compared to five. I mean, those things just change. So it's ultimately the cadence and what needs to be delivered to provide the confidence that the business is running smooth, effective in what the board and the investors are looking for. Okay, well, I think, I think we'll wrap it there. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, before we go, what's the best way for the listeners to reach you? Yeah, so um, my individual consulting business is actually Degging Cold Consulting. And it's D-E-G-E-N-K-O-L-B, consulting at gmail.com. Awesome. All right. Well, listeners, you know where to reach out if you're interested in hearing more about uh, sales best practices or getting some consulting. If you have any questions for us, send us an email at info at angelnears.com. Thanks, Mark, for joining the show today. Let's get you back here soon. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.